Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Susie, the cause of death on your husband, Matt's death certificate was officially listed as complications of chronic ethanolism. July 13th would have been your 20th anniversary if you had not, if the divorce had not been final by then. These are all words that you've shared with us recently. You've shared the official cause of death. We, we all know, knew basically what it was, but, but those, those four official words. And then you've shared recently that you're, it would have been your 20th anniversary. And we knew that you were in the process of divorce when, um, when he passed away. Um, my question for you, I, if it sounds listeners, like I want to get all the really hard stuff out of the way right away. And and then I'm being blunt about it. You're a hundred percent, right? This is, this is a really hard conversation. Certainly hard for Sherry and I, um, we're ridiculously impressed with how strong you are, Susie, and the way that you're mourning and getting through this. Um, but, uh, the, the question that comes out of all of this really tough stuff that I'm, I'm leading off with is around the fact that you shared with us that you didn't, or you weren't in the process of getting a divorce because you didn't love him, but that that love was different. Now you've been through so much. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that, that, the love that you felt for him at the end was different than the original love? Um, sure. That's, that's actually a very complicated question, believe it or not. Um, oh, I believe it. I mean, I think with any marriage, you have phases of your marriage, right? So, I mean, you start off and you're almost puppy love, just everything is hunky dory and happy and you're, starting fresh and, and, and you couldn't imagine being more in love, right? When you, when you first get together and actually get married. Um, and so like most couples, that's, that was what we had. And then we had almost 20 years together. So through that time, you, you have ups and downs where you don't really like each other very much. And then, and you work through it. And, and, you know, when you're in a committed relationship where you feel like, um, divorce isn't really an option. And that's kind of how I felt throughout my marriage. Um, you know, you just, you work through it, you have conversations, you, you maybe actually just kind of put things on pause for a while in a sense that you're not communicating as much just so that you can regroup. Um, and so there's just a lot of different stuff that happens, but when you, as you well know, when you throw alcoholism into the mix, it's, changes everything about that scenario because the person that you are dealing with is not the same person that you met and married. And even though that does happen a little bit in regular marriage, it's completely a different person. Um, Everything about my husband was different from the way that he communicated to 
his drive for, for success to his, the way he showed love. I mean, I can't even begin to explain how different a person becomes when alcohol comes in and, and, and everyone who has that understands what I'm talking about, because it's, you're not dealing with the same person. And so my love for him was very much a love for the guy that I was with before alcohol came into the picture. Um, and by the end, there was very little of that guy left. Wow, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question that I'm sure that you're sick of answering, but I, I don't think we would be doing this podcast episode. We would be doing it a disservice if we didn't address this and ask you, how are you doing? I mean, let, let's break down what you've been through. You've been through the, the death of your husband, um, which, you know, I can't even imagine what that's like to lose a spouse. But on top of that, you were in the middle of a divorce. So you had gone through that really, really, really difficult decision-making process, trying everything that you could to avoid divorce. But you had ultimately decided that that was the, the route you had to go. And then just a couple of weeks ago, you came past what would have been your 20th anniversary. How are you doing before we get back to the story? That's also a very complicated question. Mm. Um, I think, honestly, I can say that I'm okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not devastated in the sense that I can't function. Um, but I think part of that is the nature of who I am as a person. Um, I, I, I have four kids. I have to function. It's not an option for me not to function. Um, but I'm also being very intentional about allowing myself opportunities to really grieve uh, and, and walk through the pain and the sorrow that comes with um, not only the loss of a spouse in the traditional sense of him passing away, but the loss of a spouse that happens when you're dealing with alcoholism as well. So um, it... it <laughs> It made it very, it makes it very complicated. Um, it makes grief very complicated because there are so many pieces to that. Um, but I'm very open with myself and honest with myself about what was happening in our lives and how I really feel about it. I'm taking time to explore that, uh, which I think is what's helping me get through. Well, your strength is, is very impressive and I'm sure you're sick of hearing that too. I, I, I know that that's a kind of a buzzwordy thing that, that gets old. Um, but, but we are impressed. I know just when we sat down and when we were talking for a few moments before we started recording, um, Sherry got really emotional, just, just seeing you. Um, so th the process that you're going through, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because, it's working. I love the fact that you're taking time for yourself. That is so, so, so important. Let's go back to the beginning and let's learn a little bit more about your relationship and about you and your husband. How did you meet Susie and, and talk about what early dating was like? <laughs> okay. Is that complicated too? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. 
<laughs> no, um, we actually met because of some mutual friends. Um, so I was going to a church um, in the area where he was living and working, um, and which was about a 25, 30 minute drive for me, but it was um, a church that I was connected to from my childhood. So that was why I was going there at the time. Uh, and I got to be good friends with some people who were also going there. He was not going to that church. He was going to a different one. Um, and they kept saying to me, hey, we have this guy that you should meet. He's the nicest guy we know. You're the nicest girl we know. We think you should get together. Um, and I thought that was hilarious. And I just kept saying, well, if he's so great, why aren't you dating him? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I guess long story short, we, we would get together like once a week kind of for a while just to hang out and talk and whatever. And of course it happened to be in a bar, which I think is really funny. I wasn't a big bar goer. It was really more of, it's a restaurant bar, but we would sit there and we'd get a beverage and eat peanuts and talk and whatever. Um, and so one night I, he came and we met and, um, Shortly thereafter, he called and asked me out. And I guess he would say the rest is kind of history. We had a very fast um, dating relationship. We were married actually 10 months to the day after we met. So it was not a long drawn out affair. Um, were you we were, married in the bar with peanuts? We, we were not married in the bar with peanuts, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we, 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 we did it fast. We knew we were right for each other. We were both a little bit older at that point. We were like late twenties. So, um, and that may not sound older to, to a lot of people, but in my circles, I was a, I was an old lady getting married because everyone I knew had gotten married when they were like 22. So, um, so I was a little later, uh, and yeah, and it was, it was really good. He was, he was a really, he was a good guy and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun, uh, early on. He made me laugh a lot. So. Oh, that's great. Was, was alcohol involved with the dates early on? Was it a typical, you know, you're going out? Well, you, I mean, there was, there was the always, 20s, right? yeah, I mean, there was always alcohol present in the sense that like, you know, you'd go out and you'd have a beverage, like everybody right. did. It was like, no, right. it was not a big deal. When it was never, it was never too excess. I mean, we literally would go out and have a drink or maybe two, but usually just one because we were driving and we didn't want to drive intoxicated. So, um, yeah, there wasn't, I wouldn't say that it had, it was a big influence. It was there, but it wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a problem at all at that time. Did you guys start having kids right away? Uh, we waited only a year <laughs> because I wanted to have my first before I was 30. So um, yeah, so we, we didn't wait a, a super long time to, to start trying and we got pregnant pretty, pretty quickly. So, so it doesn't sound like one of the things that we hear a lot is that when you know maybe both the spouses are reasonably heavy drinkers and when they have the first child the the wife um becomes more responsible and is looking out for the child as priority number one and while the husband keeps going on the the strong drinking side of things that's certainly what happened with sherry and i it doesn't sound like that was necessarily the case matt wasn't a big drinker at at the point when you had your first child no, no, I wouldn't have called him a big drinker. I would, I would average. <laughs> yeah. He drank about the same amount that everybody else I knew drank, right? Yeah. So it wasn't. It was when when we had our first kid. It was he was fully present and involved and very much um, 
in love with having a kid and, and very, very present. I never, ever felt like he wasn't a part of part of it at that point. That's great. That's great. And like you said, you had four kids. Did that trend continue through, through the birth of the kids? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Matt's, Matt's drinking didn't actually become a problem until maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, and my wow. youngest now is 11. So we had a good long time where it was just what I would have considered normal drinking, <laughs> which I'm not sure there is such a thing as normal drinking, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but that I've got to ask, and I don't, I have no idea how you're going to answer this for us. I was drinking hard and heavy the day we met Sherry never had that, that period. So having those memories, especially of your kids early childhood where Matt was fully present and um, alcohol was not a problem in your lives. Um, it is that good or is it, is it painful because you had it and then it went away? How, or is, that's probably a complicated answer too, I would imagine. It is. It's both. I mean, there's, yeah. there's definitely, I treasure those memories. I'm, I'm grateful for having, knowing what he was like before, but it also makes it so much more painful to have watched what the alcohol did to him because the man that I loved was disappearing right in front of my eyes. Wow. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How did that, how, how did we go from normal to not normal? Talk about the progression. Was there a specific trigger or did it just build over time? I, I think both again, <laughs> I think sure. that there was a lot of building over time. So I think that his drinking did become more and more, and maybe I wasn't really paying attention to that. Um, I didn't, I didn't really see it, but we also had some major, he specifically had some major work events that were taking place and the stress was, I think what was kind of the trigger for him like that he was self-medicating to to manage his stress um and it just got more and more and more out of control you know there are so many different things that we self-medicate that drive us over that invisible line uh into heavy drinking and then eventually into addiction but i can't tell you how common the the workplace stress is as a factor in our shout sobriety group for high functioning alcoholics that are trying to find early sobriety. Almost every single person right at the top of the list is what, what I would call kind of self-inflicted workplace stress. And I know that, you know, it's not completely self-inflicted because you had a boss and you got, you know, all the, all these, the, the company or whatever is pushing you responsibilities but at the end of the day, we could choose another career path. We want to succeed in the thing that we're doing. We either love it or it's the thing that we went to school for. Um, we have experience. We have expertise. We've climbed the ladder so far and we don't want to start over. But we push ourselves and we push ourselves and we push ourselves to the point where, you know, th there's got to be some kind of release and relief for that. And unfortunately for the drinkers out there like myself and, and like your husband, alcohol becomes the, the only thing that we can find that temporarily works um, and not realizing that it's also causing all kinds of problems. 
So as he was self-medicating and, and using alcohol um, to manage the stress of work, who knew first? Could he, did he recognize that he was going down a bad path or did you see it? How, how did that play out? Uh, I think I saw it first in the sense that my guess is he knew that there was, that things weren't good, <laughs> but um, like you've talked about a lot, he couldn't admit that there, there was no way he could admit that because that would mean having to stop. And that was not going to happen. Like he just, yeah. I mean, it took a long time for him to even admit he had a problem. Um, and so for me, it was, it was kind of a slow progression in the sense that like, I mean, I was working at the time too. So I would come home from work and he often worked from home because he was um, doing the kind of business that was able to do that. And, and I would either find him passed out or I, he was clearly intoxicated when I would get home and wasn't able to actually like function um, as a, as a husband and a father at that moment. Right. So um and we would have discussions about him not drinking so much about trying to, to cut back or, or make it so that he could, could function it. And it just seemed to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Wow. Um, did it, was it having an impact on the family as a whole? Was it having an impact on the kids as well? I'm sure you were doing everything you could to protect them from it. Right. I, I, I was. And I think that, Part of the part of the issue is, you know, as you guys know, a lot of alcoholics hide it. So I didn't always see when he was doing it, especially because I was working outside the home. And so I wasn't always home or and I was very busy. I mean, four kids and actually the, the time I had two jobs and, you know, it was just I was all over the place all the time. Um, and so I didn't think that their, that their kids were being impacted that much by it. But I mean, having conversations with them now, they definitely were and come to find out he had been driving them while intoxicated. And I didn't know. Um, so, you know, he was functional enough that I would be, I would be comfortable leaving him in charge of some of the kids and then, you know, and then come to find out later that he was definitely not okay to be in charge or driving or anything. So, um, so yeah, they, they were definitely impacted, but I didn't realize at the time how much. So that understanding came later. I, I imagine that the understanding for what you needed came later as well. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but you, you must have been pleading and asking and begging for him to slow down or stop. Or, you know, did it, obviously it got to the point eventually where you were asking for him to get help as well. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, we did an intervention. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go back a little bit just because it it's a complicated story, I feel like. But we were we were living in one state at the time and um, he was miserable in his job because we had sold our business to, uh, to a, like another company and he was still working for that company and he did not, didn't feel like he was being listened to or valued or whatever. This, this is what he's telling me. Right. And so, um, I'm thinking, well, then we need to get out of this job situation and 
you need to do something else. And of course, knowing now what I know, that was obviously not going to help, but I was thinking it would. Um, so we had an opportunity to start a new business by moving to a new state. And so we chose to do that. Um, and we did make that decision together. At least I felt like we did. And um, there was an additional draw in that my entire family lived in the state that we were moving to. So that meant I would have a my support system, which I was really excited about because I mean, I, I love my parents and, and I'm very close with them. And so to be, to have them nearby and was, was exciting for me. Um, so we, we made the decision to move and I'm thinking that this is going to be a good thing for him, for his alcoholism. And that, that, that would help because it would alleviate the stress of the job that was causing him so much angst and um, it just made it worse <laughs> so we we got to the new state and um the the drinking intensified to a level that I had never seen before and um and so he started to have health complications from it like he suffered from several grand mal seizures related to withdrawal symptoms um because he wouldn't he would wouldn't drink as much around my family so that they wouldn't know. And so every time we would go around my family, he would cut back and his body couldn't take it. So there were two different episodes while we were um, on vacation with my family or with my family where he had grand mal seizures. Um, and after the second round of grand mal seizures, and then of course, finding out that he continues to drink, even though he realizes that his body can't take it and he might die from it that was when I decided to do, to do an intervention. So we, his whole, his family um, lives in another state. They flew in um, his, you know, siblings and his mom and my whole family participated. And we basically sent him off to rehab for three months. Before the intervention, you, you know, the seizures came when he was trying to cut back and keep it under control in front of your family. But had he had any periods of sobriety? Like, was there anything in his mind that was saying, you know, warning, 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 this is a big problem? Had he had he attempted sobriety prior to the intervention? Uh, it's hard to say if he had attempted it, because <laughs> if he did, he, he failed miserably. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I but I do know that he was telling me he was saying to me that he recognized that there was a problem. I mean, he went so far as to, to drop a, a little contract for him and I basically stating that he wasn't going to drink anymore and that he was going to get, you know, do all of these he had A, B, and C or whatever to, to try and get help. Um, but it wasn't working. So if there was any sobriety, it was days, not weeks or months at a time. So he goes to a rehab for three months, which it was, it actually was ended up being there for two and a half. I actually okay. ended up letting him come home early, but it was supposed to be three months. Yeah. And did he want to come home like the whole time? You said yes. you let him come home early. He was trying yes. to get out of there pretty much from the start. Yes. Um, and the, the point when I finally decided to let him come home, um, I had gone out to visit him uh, a few weeks prior to when he ended up coming home um, and he was looking really good and he was saying all the right things. And um, it was, it was clear he wasn't drinking. It was clear headed. He was the most him I had seen in a long time. Um, and like I said, he was telling me all of the things that I wanted to hear at that point. And I was 
really hopeful that he recognized. Um, but I also knew that just leaving him there for the next two weeks, like when we finally decided to have him come home, I, I realized that that forcing him to stay at that point was just punishment. It wasn't going to help him because he was just by the tone of his voice and the way he was acting, I could tell that, that he was not getting anything else out of the experience of being there. Was he in a hurry to come home because he needed to get back to the, the new business or did he feel like he had learned everything he could have learned or wanted to get back to the family? Is that a complicated uh, I answer? I a, imagine. Yeah, it was a combination. I think of the last, the last two that you said, he, he loved, loved his family so, so much. Like we were, we were his world. Right. So he just wanted to be back with us. Um, and he was telling me that he had learned everything he could learn from, from it. He was telling me that the program was designed for only 30 days. And so now he had been through the program two and a half times at that point and that it wasn't doing anything to, to help him anymore. Um, so I thought, okay, well, there's no point in keeping him there if he's not gonna have a good attitude about it. And I was, I was hopeful that he would um, be able to really follow through on his commitment, right? Like he, like I said, he was saying all the right things. He was telling me everything I wanted to hear and um, really heartfelt seemed to want to be beaten. What was that 75 days like for you? Was there relief from the, yes. I mean, we talk all the time about the, the nervous system, right? The nervous system gets, you're, you're up so high all the time, fight or flight when you're living with an alcoholic. Did you get to come down from that for a little while while he was gone? I did. It was the most calm I had felt in years. And, and the household was the most calm we had felt in years. Um, unlike a lot of people, um, my husband wasn't a an angry drunk. He wasn't mean. He didn't yell. We didn't fight like in the sense of yelling at each other. Um, really, I probably yelled more than he did. He did because that's just not he was, his nature. Wasn't to yell. His nature is he's a very he was always a very calm person. Um, and so, and so I. I'm losing my train of thought. I'm so sorry. Susie is wrestling with a cat that wants to be on camera so badly. It's, I'm glad we could have a little levity break here. Oh um, but I'm sure the listeners are going to be like, why are they laughing? Yeah. Uh, so this sorry. doesn't sound very laugh worthy. No, nothing to be sorry about. Uh, I'm going to take him out. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just, I know when we hear these stories, it's been like a lot, like long term alcohol abuse for years and years, like decades, perhaps. And I'm just from when we first met Susie and we met Matt, um, I just was shocked that that's that, you know, death certificate complications of chronic. How do you pronounce it? You know, I mean, in just like you said, seven or eight years, it started getting really bad. Yeah, the progression. The is progression amazing. was so quick. Yeah, well, stress does terrible things to us. And yeah, it does. Well, what's interesting is that it could have been it could have been longer than that. Like he could have been hiding it really well. I mean, he may have been 
he was a functional alcoholic, I think for years. I just, I wouldn't tell, I wouldn't be able to tell you when it started then because he was, he was so good at hiding it that I didn't, I didn't know. And I didn't see until maybe seven or eight years ago that it was really a problem. But I I mean, I know he had been drinking before that we we both were, but I was drinking, you know, I, but I never saw it to, in a way that, that I was worried or concerned about it. So, yeah. Did you feel guilt around the relief that you felt during the 75 or so days that he was in, in rehab? Did that make you feel guilty that you felt good that he wasn't there? All right. And maybe good's the wrong word, but relief. Um, maybe a little, <laughs> but, but not, yeah, I mean, there was definitely twinges of that, but honestly, I was, I was so grateful to not feel on edge all the time and to see my kids relax and to not feel that constant pressure that I just, I reveled in it. I just enjoyed every minute of our, our downtime and, um, and, and it, and it made me honestly, in a way less tolerant of that, the chaos. So going forward, I didn't, I didn't tolerate the chaos at all. Like as soon as I felt like he was getting out of control, I asked him to leave every single time. Because you had had it, you know, you had had it peaceful for a little while and saw what it could be and what it should be and didn't want to go back. That's great. I just, we talked to so many people that, that really do feel guilty about the fact that while their, their alcoholic spouse is, is gone getting treatment. Um, that that's a peaceful, restful, uh, again, nervous system comes down, period, for them. Um, and so I'm really glad to hear you say that you, for the most part, uh, you know, didn't didn't feel guilt about about that. Um, so tell us what happened when he came back. Did, did he maintain sobriety for a while? Two weeks. That was it. Yeah, two weeks. Um, at least that I, that I know of, I mean, I, again, he's really good at hiding his alcohol. So, um, but I had gotten, I had gotten really good at finding it. I mean, to, to be, to be fair, I know know that's a common thing for spouses to go on the hunt for their alcoholics, alcohol. (laughs) Um, and I, I, I knew how his brain worked. I knew all of his hiding places and, um, and so pretty much I, I knew, his trigger. And I knew what he looked like when there was alcohol present. And so as soon as I saw it again, I went looking for it. I would find it. I would confront him and I'd ask him to leave. That was, that was kind of our pattern, I guess. So it was really, really a short amount of time after job. It was heartbreaking for me to have that happen. Oh, so the, so two weeks and then relapse, um, talk, you said heartbreaking, but talk about that a little more. Were you did you have any kind of education at this point? Did you anticipate that that could happen? Or did you think you were kind of, you know, over the hump after he had been two and a half months at rehab? No, I did, I definitely had more education at that point. I mean, I had been a part of our Echoes of Recovery group for, for a little while already at that point. Um, or was it after? Now I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was after. But I had been a part of it and I had been soaking in everything. I think I'd been listening to your guys' podcast for a while before I actually ended up joining Echoes. Um, and I've done a lot of reading and uh, just, and research, cause that's the kind of gal I am. So I threw myself headfirst into to learning as much as I could 
about his disease. And um, so even though, I mean, even though I knew that relapse was likely, I, I was hopeful that we could beat the odds, right? Like that's what you always hope for. You, you, mm-hmm. you want your spouse to be the one to beat the odds. You want your spouse to be the one to, to just turn it all around. Um, and so I knew that relapse was a very real possibility, but I was praying a lot that it wouldn't be our reality. But unfortunately, that was not the case for us. So. One of the things that's really interesting about your story, similar to what happened with Sherry, you know, Sherry didn't learn about detachment from a book. Um, she just got to the end of a rope and couldn't stand it any longer and detached in a very natural way from me. She stopped wanting to hear what I had to say when I would tell her how, oh, I got this new plan to control my drinking or um, I'm really going to quit this time or whatever. She just had had enough. Um, It sounds like that's similar to what happened to you after he had been gone for two and a half months and you had experienced what the house could be like, what the life could be like for you and your, your kids when, you know, when it's in a peaceful setting. And then when he relapsed, you, you described it as you had no tolerance and, and you would ask him to leave. Did you, did you think of that as detachment? Did you realize what you were doing or did it just come so naturally that you're like, this is how it's gotta be. Um, I, yeah, I think it was a, a very natural, th- like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And it was, it was less so I feel like for me than for my kids, like I, I had no tolerance for what he was doing to our kids. So they, that was probably the biggest push for me. I may have been a little less harsh, I guess, if it had just been him and I, but because it impacted our children, I was like, nope, you can't be here and drink. So if you're going to drink, then you need to move out. Yeah, that that mothering instinct is so strong. And I mean, it's there to protect those kids. And I'm so glad that you you have that for their sake and for your sake. So how did it progress to the point? Talk about when you decided that enough was enough and that you needed to move toward divorce. Well, I had... I had been waffling for a long time, um, but I really did not feel like I was ready to take that step. Um, but uh, I, I had, it's, it's hard because I, I kind of went back and forth. So I, I actually went to a lawyer and talked to a lawyer uh, months before I actually ended up doing anything uh, just so that I would know kind of the process and I would understand how, how to move forward should I decide to do that. Um, but then I, I didn't at that time. So months went by where I did nothing. Um, and I kind of, it got to the point where the, the straw that broke the camel's back was his his last major lapse where Um, we had, I mean, we've got four kids, so, and they all have their own activities. So we had a day where we had to divide and conquer because two kids had to go to two different things at the same time. And he had, um, I knew things weren't great with him because one of his signs, I guess, was uh, constantly sleeping. (laughs) Like he slept a lot. 
And the hard part was not knowing whether that was his body's way of trying to recover, because I know that mm-hmm. there's a lot of that that comes with recovery, like right. you extra everything at that point, or if he was drinking again, like it was, it was one of those things where I, I wasn't hundred percent sure because the other, some of the other signs that, that would let me know instantly that he was drinking weren't necessarily there. It was just the sleeping all the time. So on that particular day, he was, had been sleeping for most of the day and I was having trouble like getting him to wake up, um, which was not a good sign, (laughs) but, but I, you know, he's always been kind of a hard, heavy sleeper. So wasn't sure. Um, anyway, I took off to take one kid and he was responsible for taking two others to soccer. And I was, I had that suspicion in the back of my mind. He probably shouldn't be driving the kids, but I didn't know what else to do because I couldn't be in two places at once. Um, and so I actually, I almost texted my third child at the time and said, just leave it be. I'll, I'll be home. You'll be late to soccer, but I'll be home soon. And I'll bring you when I get home. Um, but they managed to get him up and out the door. And so, and you know, she's the kind of kid that hates to be late. So she, she did everything she could to get him up and out the door. And so he drove them to soccer and then proceeded to go and sit at a a bar restaurant and drink while they were at soccer. Um, And I get a call as I'm driving home from the other activity from the fire department because he had passed out at the restaurant and they were having trouble rousing him. So they called the fire department. Um, And so they called me to say that he couldn't drive home and that somebody needed to come get him. And that was, that was it for me. That was when I went, I'm done. I can't, Mm. I can't anymore. Um, He was still putting our kids at risk by driving them most likely well intoxicated and then going out and drinking when he knew he had to drive them home again, because there was no other way for them to get home. Um, And so um, at that point, that was when I went into, okay, I went back and saw the lawyer again and we started the process. Um, and just to clarify something, you had said that I was kind of in the middle of a divorce process and I, I really wasn't, it was still more at the beginning stages. I hadn't actually even signed any papers yet to, mm. to file. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know if that's not really the right word, but I was supposed to sign papers the morning they found, we found his body. Mm. So, um, so the divorce still felt very new and fresh the decision had been made long before we actually got to that point, but we hadn't, I hadn't actually taken the steps to make it official. But he knew of the decision, right? He knew that I was talking to a lawyer. I had not told him that I was actually going to sign papers. Okay. My okay. plan had been to sign the papers and then meet with him to talk to him about it and then have him served like right after that. Hmm. Um, I was, I was, to be fair, honest, I was trying to be strategic financially so that I didn't have to worry about some certain financial things that could happen if he knew way ahead of time. So, well, I'm glad you brought that in because that is a very, very, very real consideration, um, that has to be made when going through this process. We hear it time and again, we hear lots of stories where people stay longer than they wish they had because of financial considerations. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that that's a very realistic part of the process that you were going through. 
You mentioned earlier that you're very close with your family. And you also mentioned that his family knew everything um, or knows everything that has happened at this point, obviously. But were they involved in your decision-making process at all? Were you getting any kind of support? Um, my family was had been pushing for me to leave him for a while. Um, they didn't believe that he was going to be able to get sober. Um, but they didn't, they didn't push so much that I felt pressured. It was, it was just, we're here to support you. If that's what you feel like you need to do, we are here. We're going to, we're behind you hundred percent. Right. Like that was kind of how it was. It wasn't like you need to divorce him. You need to divorce him. You need to divorce him because honestly, divorce is not something that my family subscribes to typically. Like we just were, it, we're the kind of family that you work it out that when you marry it's for life and you're in it for the long haul. Um, but throwing alcohol in the mix changed all that because it, it, he wasn't the same person. He just wasn't. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about hope. You, You have shared some really, some stuff that I think is just really, really interesting. You talked about the fact that even as you were starting the divorce process, even as you had made that decision, you still had hope that someday he could get sober and not just get sober as in dry drunk, but get sober and go through recovery and make the effort to, to get back to the man that he had been and to, you know, woo you back again. Um, so, so even at the beginning of the, divorce process, you had that hope. Um, but, but then he, he died and that hope died along with him. Um, can you talk a little bit about how it felt to, we hear people talk all the time about how in a marriage with being married to an alcoholic is a very alone feeling. So you felt alone in your marriage. Um, but that hope still existed can you contrast that with what it feels like now? I mean, the hope died along with your husband, didn't it? It did. It did. I think that it leaves you in such a, I don't even know how to put this in the words. When you, when you love somebody so much that you are willing to do almost anything to help them get better. And when you watch them reject that in a sense over and over and over again, it does start to kill the hope, but it never kills it completely, right? Like it's always still there. There's always that little twinge that they're going to figure it out. They're going to turn it around. They're going to stop drinking and you'll be able to repair the damage in the relationship. And so it's, it's, it's still there, but then having him die, that's no longer an option for me. Like, I don't, I don't get that anymore. I don't, I don't get to hope that he's going to figure it out and turn it around and become the man that I know he could have been that I saw in the beginning, that I saw the first 13 years of our marriage, right? And so that is incredibly 
devastating to a heart, I feel like, to have that hope completely stripped away. Um, and, and I have, I mean, I have different hopes now, right? Like there, it's not like I'm, I can't keep moving forward or I can't, but that particular hope of having the man that I loved be by my side until we're old and gray and <laughs> that's gone. I don't get that anymore. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. And I, I'm sure that I, it would be interesting to see what would have been if he hadn't died. Like if we, if I had filed for divorce, if that hope would have stayed, because people had asked me, you know, would you be able to still be together? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I didn't shut the door on that. I didn't. Well, you were I, still going to have to co-parent, right? So right. there was going to have to be some arrangement. Right. And so, what that looked yeah. like, you you don't know until you, you get there, I suppose. Right. So, I mean, again, I was hopeful, but I didn't know for sure. Yeah. I just think it's important that we acknowledge the fact that, um, d you know, divorce doesn't have to mean the end of hope. Uh, we hear often people say, that they, they don't want to divorce their spouse or they're afraid that they'll divorce their spouse and then he'll find sobriety, he'll find recovery and they will have blown it, you know, which is, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself to, to say something like that or to think something like that. I just love the fact that you were not looking at divorce as necessarily the end. Um, it was necessary. I think from everything that you've shared and Sherry and I have gotten to know you over the last couple of years, we 100% support the decision that you made or were in the process of making, but it doesn't mean that hope has to die. There, there can still be um, that, that possibility that sobriety and recovery will come even after divorce and that a reconciliation can happen. But that's so different from what you face now, the finality of it all. Yes. Um, yeah. And you expressed, you said you were, not sure if you could find the words, but you expressed it really, really well. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with you now, Susie. Um, you, you've shared with us recently that you're learning to slow down now. And I, you know, that your nervous system doesn't have to always be on high alert. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that's got to be part of your morning process, right? Learning to slow down when it comes to decision making and reacting to things. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been a part of, of my process. Um, I, I actually started researching that whole concept while I was still in the thick of it with, with Matt because I needed something. Um, I was in therapy and my, you know, my therapist and I were talking about ways to calm, calm my, my body down um, because I, it, cause it, I was in a constant state of just anxiety and feeling like, and I don't mean anxiety, like clinical, but just, just constantly feeling like waiting for the sh next shoe to drop, right? Like that, that's that feeling like you just can't relax or can't just let it all go. Um, so I had started doing some research then, but it's, but it's really become helpful even through, through this process as, as you grieve and as you mourn, um, being open to allowing those feelings to just 
over overcome, overwhelm you and knowing that it's okay because they will pass, right? It's, I think it's scary when you're, when you're staring those feelings in the face and a lot of people want to shut them off into a little box. Um, but knowing that that's not, that's not actually going to help me. What is going to help me is to, to allow them to come and to process them. Um, and I was definitely starting to, to get that concept with Matt. I think that was one of the reasons that allowed me to be so matter of fact with him about stuff was because I was taking time at that time to really just breathe and be like, okay, what is it that I need in this moment? And, and not be quite so reactionary because in the beginning it was very reactionary. You know, you, something happens and boom, you go into, okay, I got to do something about this mode. Um, and I actually think that's why the divorce process was so slow in a sense for me, because I wasn't rushing it. I wasn't jumping in head first. I was taking my time to go, okay, is this really what I feel like I need? Do my kids, is this what my kids need? Is this the step that's going to, to help us be okay? Um, or is it reactionary? Am I just, I'm sick of it. I'm done. I'm going to move on because I am very quick to, to, to do that otherwise. So it's, it's, it's the only thing I think that's been keeping me sane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine has the family, both sides, really, I'm curious, uh, your family and his family, have they rallied around you? Have, have they been supportive? Yes, um, probably more so my family, uh, but that's probably because I live near them. Um, sure, his sure. His family lives in another state, so I, I'm not with them as much. Um, and they've got their own mourning that they're doing as well, I'm right. sure. Yeah. Right. So, but but yes, in the, in the sense that I feel like both both families have just been incredibly, incredibly supportive and loving. How are your kids doing? Honestly, as I, I, as good as can be expected. I mean, I, sure. I really feel like I have always been very open with them about everything throughout this process. Um, once once I recognized what was really going down, and uh, once I once I was very aware of what that meant for all of us. Um, I've included them in an age appropriate way <laughs> as much as I could in the process so that they never felt like I was keeping things from them so that they could voice their thoughts and opinions and feel like they were a part of things. Um, and I think that that's really been beneficial as we've been moving forward. Uh, in a lot of ways, their lives have we, we've been a lot more calm and peaceful um, without Matt there, which is so sad, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, and so um, there's been a lot of growth I've seen happen um, in all of them, uh, specifically though, my older two, just maturity that, that, they, that they now have that they, that's almost beyond their years because of all that we've been through. Um, and they've, they've been amazing through, through it all. They really have. Well, I, I, I have a question about your growth and your process of learning about this disease, about your side of the street, as it relates to this disease. I'm wondering, and 
I, I feel I feel like a total ass asking all these really difficult questions, and um, but uh, this this is what the conversation is about today. So I'm going to ask another one. Do Do you feel like the learning process that you went through, um, figuring out what you needed in the way of recovery, understanding boundaries, um, understanding uh, what a healthy life was going to look like for you and your kids. Has that protected you from feeling guilt about his death? I, I just, I would hate the idea um, that you would think, gosh, what if I had only done this? Or what if I had said this instead? Or, or what if I had tried these other three things to, to get him to stop drinking and be in a healthy place? You and I both know on a conscious and Sherry knows as well, educated level that there's nothing you could have done. There's nothing you could have done, but that doesn't change how we feel emotionally. So how do you feel emotionally? Is there any guilt there for you? Yes and no. So, so I think that it's impossible to not have a little bit of guilt. Um, I think that my, my guilt really mostly stems from situations around his actual death uh, in the sense that, um, and I don't know if it's guilt, but my heart is broken that, that he, he died alone, mm. that he wasn't with us mm. when he died. Um, my heart aches because of that. But it was what had to be at that time because he wasn't doing what he needed to do to get help. He wasn't following his program. He wasn't staying sober. And he, he was telling me he was even while he was living outside our home, but he wasn't. Uh, I mean, my, my mom actually was the one who found him. And she said that there were empty bottles all over his apartment. So he wasn't staying sober. He wasn't not drinking. Um, and so that does, I think, help assuage some of the guilt in a sense, because I, I was doing what I needed to do to protect myself and my kids. Um, so okay. in that, I don't feel guilty. I guess I just feel sad. I feel so much sorrow yeah. for all of the, the circumstances that surrounded it. But I, I truly believe that I did everything that I possibly could to support him without enabling him, without allowing him to just continue to be an alcoholic. <laughs> so I, I was doing what I needed to do to protect myself, to protect my kids. Um, and I was hopeful that some of the steps that I was doing might actually spur him into action, but, I, but that wasn't the reason I did them. I was just, it, it would have been a nice benefit if it had happened, but I didn't. So. That is, that's so perfectly said. I'm, I'm glad. I'm so, so glad and relieved to hear you say that that's, that's how you really feel when you, you know, when you think about it, uh, on a conscious level, um, that because you're, there's no doubt in Sherry and I's mind that you did everything that you possibly could. And that the decisions you made, um, were in the best interest of you and your kids. And that, that that's where the decisions had to be. And, and like you said, maybe there could have been some side benefit for your husband, but um, it, it just didn't play out that way. It's really interesting that your sadness for him is that he was alone 
because of something you said earlier, much, you know, much earlier toward the beginning of the podcast, you talked about how much he loved his family and how much you guys were his happy place. So it makes perfect sense that you would feel that sadness and grief for him that he had to die alone. Um, Susie, one, one last, uh, you know, kind of big, per, perhaps challenging question. Um, sorry to throw another one at you, but so, so, you know, you've, you, you've been going through this for, for a few months now. Um, have you had a chance to think about, again, on the topic of hope, what is your hope for yourself and your kids? You know, I, I'm sure you've got to spend a lot of time in a mourning process. You've got to spend a lot of time just staying in the present, but have you had a chance to think about what your hope is for your family for the future? Um, and you can uh, just say, Matt, you're an ass. That's too big. <laughs> no, no, actually, I mean, I have, I, I do think about the future, right? Like I can't not, um, I am taking it very slow with regards to any sort of action going forward. And that's part of, that's part of what I'm saying. I don't, I'm not, I'm trying not to be reactionary. Um, But at this point, I mean, I, I guess my biggest hope is just that we continue to move towards a place of, of being healthy emotionally. Right. So, so that we, that we are able to continue that mourning process, um, that we can move through it, which sounds weird because you don't actually move through it. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna ever stop in a sense mourning. It just will be different mourning. I, I mean, I've, I, uh, 20 some years ago, I lost a sister and I still mourn that loss, but it's very mm. different the way I mourn that loss today as, as it was when she died originally. So I know that that is how this will go also. Um, but yeah, again, there's definitely some hope, <laughs> I guess. I, I almost want to say excitement, but it's not quite to the level of excitement for sure. what, what could be in the future, right? For what life could look like going forward. Um, but I'm not rushing it. I'm not, I'm not rushing that process at all. I'm just at this point, taking it day by day and, and seeing what we need in this moment. And um, I'm, I'm, I am very excited and hopeful for my daughter who is 18 and going off to college this next year. I'm super excited for what her future will look like because this is an amazing opportunity for her. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, there's lots of hope there, uh, for what, what could, could be for her. Um, I mean, for all the kids really, but that's kind of one of those moments, right. As a parent, when you yeah. watch <laughs> take that step into adulthood and go off and be on their own. Um, well, and what a reminder that is that, that even as you're dealing with death and mourning a loss, life goes on, you've still got to make this big transition with your daughter and, you know, stay focused on on the future it's um it really it, it really does you know put things in perspective uh and I, i'm glad that 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 you're there for her and that you guys are taking that step together one of the things that really really impresses me about you susie when we when we first discussed the possibility of recording an episode together you said that you wanted to be 
part of helping other people not necessarily have to go through what you've been through and just, you know, talking about it, sharing the message, sharing your story is one way to, to help prevent a repeat of the story for others. Um, and I, I just can't tell you how much I applaud you for, for being part of this, this big mission out there to, to make this disease um, impact far fewer people than it, than it does today. Is there anything in, in your story, any pieces that we missed that you think are really important? Um, I think you did an excellent job you know, of explaining what went down and, and answering all of my terrible, awful, mean questions. Um, but is there, is there anything we missed that you think is important for people to know? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think that the, it, it's, it's glaringly obvious on the one side that my story um, is a cautionary tale for what could be for an alcoholic. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want it to, to come across as like doomsday-ish, but it is possible to die from this disease and literally from this disease. I mean, the fact that there was no other cause listed on his death certificate proves the fact that this disease itself can kill you. Um, but I also hope that my story can be, can be a beacon of hope for anyone who's going through it, that no matter what happens in your situation, that there, there is hope at the end of it, like that there is a future for you. So whether your spouse gets sober or whether you end up divorced or whether your spouse ends up dying, that there's, there's hope for you in, in that story, that you can walk through it and be okay and, and enjoy your life and look forward to the future, no matter what that might look like. Mm. That's, that's excellent advice. Um, you, I, I love that. You know, the other thing that I really love, I love the fact, the other the big lesson that comes out of your story, I think, is the fact that you did the work, you did the research, you worked on your own recovery, you, you did detach in a natural way, you established boundaries and lines that were not to be crossed, you protected your kids, you did all of that stuff. And to me, I think that's protecting you now from those feelings of guilt, like, oh, if only I had done more, or if I had made different decisions, or if I had not decided to file for divorce, we wouldn't have gone down this path. You are protected from that unnecessary pain because you know um, that what you did was right. I know your faith is a huge component of that for you. Um, and you have that to lean on and to rely on. Um, I would just, I, I think that's a, an, another piece that people can take away from your story. Um, learn about this thing, get recovery from yourself for yourself. Don't just be urging your spouse to find sobriety, do the work yourself so that you are emotionally and, and in a logical way protected from that doubt and insecurity that is just abounds as the loved one of an alcoholic. So I'm so, so proud of you and proud to have you as a friend. Thank you very much for coming on, on the Intoxicated podcast and uh, telling a painful story, but, but one that ends with hope. 
we we appreciate you so much, Susie Jan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.